I get exercise ads that use words like empowerment and being your best self and self-care. And I'm like, oh, this is so positive and not only about body image. But then I go seeking out, you know, other parts of Instagram, for example, and like accounts with 800,000 people are really about like, get your most shredded abs, tiniest waist ever, fat burning. And I'm like, oh, this is like exactly like 1990 when I was like buying diet fuel at GNC, you know, and like trying to just really be as thin and ripped as possible. And so I really think um, it kind of depends who you're listening to. I do think when we think about dominant like media messaging around advertising, we probably have moved away from the overt like, don't get fat, you know, get thin. I think we have moved away from that. And, you know, I look at a lot of historical ads in my um, work and even from 10, like 15 years ago, there's been a real shift in the messaging and kind of like mainstream media outlets. Hi, I'm Pete McCall. And welcome to this episode of the All About Fitness podcast. Now, before I get into the full introduction for the voice you just heard, I want to take a moment to say thank you. And I mean this, thank you so much. The numbers are looking great. You guys are really supporting the podcast. I I, I sincerely, sincerely appreciate that. And I'm going to take it a step further. If you enjoy All About Fitness, please feel free to share it. If you're a fitness blogger, if you're a blogger, feel free to link to it in your blogs, put it up on on your Facebook, on your social media. If there's an episode you really like that you enjoy, that you get a lot out of, then by all means, please share it. Now, to get into the introduction for today, there are a couple reasons why I wanted to have this guest on. And and this is exciting news now, but I am making history today, or I'm making history with this episode, because this is the first episode that I produce specifically for the YouTube platform, as well as for the traditional audio platforms. So All About Fitness is on a number of platforms, including Apple, it's on uh, the Apple platform, it's on Stitcher, it's on Spotify, but a lot of podcasts are being consumed on YouTube, so I've set up a space in my in my apartment to be able to start filming some of these interviews. Not every interview is going to be filmed for YouTube, but you can go to the All About Fitness Podcast. That's All About Fitness Podcast YouTube channel, and you can see the conversation that Natalia and I have today. And I'll be putting up. I got some other great interviews I'm working on. We are we're going to be. I am going to be recording them, putting them up on uh, the YouTube channel. And really, what I'm trying to do is make this more inclusive. I want you to feel like you're part of the conversation. And one way to do that is having you watch that. Now, on that note, one of the things I'm also doing is I'm building out my Facebook page. You can go to All About Fitness Podcast with Pete McCall. I think it's All About Fitness. It's All About Fitness with Pete McCall on Facebook. Please like that page. Please join it. If you have any questions that you want me to answer, if you have any fitness questions, anything that you'd want me to address, please post it on that Facebook page. The other thing I want you to do is post success stories. There's nothing I love hearing more than people who've lost 5, 10, 20, 50, 80, 200 pounds. Recently, uh, not recently, but I guess a little bit more than a year ago, I had uh, Vance Hines on as a guest. And Vance Hines has lost more than 200-something pounds doing a variety of different things. But one thing he's done is posting his success on social media. There's something called vicarious experiences. By posting about your success, whether it's on my Facebook page, whether it's on your blog, but sharing your success shows others that it is possible. And that's what I want my Facebook page to become. That's what I want this community to become. On YouTube, the All About Fitness Podcast YouTube channel, I want you to be able to interact with one another on the podcast, have the discussion about what you like or what you thought about about the interview. On my Facebook page, I want to be able to share information there. And now here's the thing. I'm also going to be setting up another Facebook page to share information with people who purchase content. You can buy an ebook, you can buy a workout, you can buy bundles. I have continuing education courses. All that's down below in the show notes. You can also buy my book, Smarter Workouts. It's kind of hard for me to track that, but the point is if you buy content from me, I am going to be doing exclusive content for you, doing webinars, maybe doing workout programs. If you go to my website, PeteMcCallFitness.com and sign up for my mailing list, you will find out about that and you'll get my blog. I'm doing two blogs, not two blogs, I'm doing two emails a month with blogs, with exercise how-tos, and with other information. And everything that I'm trying to do in this podcast is to help you learn how to use exercise to enhance your quality of life. And that gets me to this discussion with today with Dr. Petrozella. And Natalia, now the irony is Natalia and I have never met in person. We've had a number of fabulous conversations. And I was a history, kind of a history major in college. I ended up getting a degree in government economics. 
I just decided to take it easy my last semester, but that's a whole nother conversation. So I'm a history geek. I love this stuff. And I love Dr. Dr. Natalia is working on a book on the history of the fitness industry. And what I wanted to bring her on for, for this episode in particular, is we're wrapping up 2020. We're getting ready to go into a new year, thankfully. Oh my goodness. I don't know about you, but I am so ready to get to, to, to turn the page, get going on 2021. But I wanted to bring a, a professor of history who specializes in the fitness industry. I wanted to have her on as a guest as like her fifth or sixth time to talk about the context of COVID and what that's going to mean for the evolution of how the fitness industry is going to change. Now, studying history does not allow you to predict the future. It doesn't. But studying history allows you to put future events or events that are happening now into context. And actually, Natalia does a great podcast. I'm going to have a link down below. She has a podcast with a few other history professors called The Past Present Pod. So if you're a history geek like me, I love those podcasts because they try to contextualize current events by looking at history and how does it apply. That's what we do on this episode. Doc Natalia and I, we talk about kind of the history of fitness, the history of fitness, how the fitness industry has evolved, and now we're seeing a major disruption. Due to the COVID pandemic, we're seeing a major disruption in how fitness is being delivered to the end user. People aren't going to the gyms as much anymore. They are getting streaming workouts. Just this week, the week that I'm recording this, this right now, Apple released Apple Fitness Plus, which is a really killer platform. So that's what we talk about today. We talk about a little bit of history of the fitness industry and what that means for the future and how the fitness industry is going to evolve as a function of COVID. So really, it is truly an honor. I love having these discussions with her, and I truly can't wait. Hopefully, one day we can actually meet in person, sit down, and have a much longer conversation. But here we are with Dr. Natalia Petrozella an associate professor of history at the New School in New York City. And you know what? If you want to learn more, you can go to my YouTube channel and see this interview in live and in person. So let's get started with the conversation with Dr. Natalia. Hi, and I want to welcome you to the absolutely very first All About Fitness podcast that I'm recording specifically for the All About Fitness podcast YouTube channel. And there's nobody I'd rather be doing this with then the actual, and, and I remember, I don't know if you remember this, Natalia, but you are the official historian for the All About Fitness podcast. Today, we're speaking and with Dr. I wear proudly, so thank well, you. Well, no, this is, I think, the, the maybe the fourth or fifth time uh, we've, we've recorded a conversation because I really, I appreciate the point of view that you bring. And, and for listeners and viewers, Dr. Petrozella, Dr. Natalia Petrozella is an associate of history at the New School in New York, in New York, in New York City. I was about to say New York history, but you're, she's an associate of uh, professor of history. And one of the cool things, though, is she's also a certified group fitness instructor. And Natalia, tell, talk a little bit about the book that you're working on, because I know this has been it, it's you know, I, I, I'm looking forward to it. Right. I, I the, the history geek that I am. I'm looking forward to it. So what, what's the book that you're working on? Yeah, I'm looking forward to it too, because I think like many people working on big projects in the pandemic, it has not moved as quickly as I would like, but I'm getting there. Um, so yeah, the book is tentatively entitled Fit Nation, and it's basically a history of how America became so obsessed with exercise as exercise became really a luxury product, like not something that everybody has access to. And so to me, it's just really interesting, like as a, you know, total lover of fitness like you, that's how we first met. It's really interesting that there was a time in our history when if you were someone who worked out regularly, like you were weird, you had to explain that away. That was seen as a bad mark on your character. And so this book tells the story about the way that that changed. And we really have come to see, you know, oh, I work out is, oh, you must be disciplined. Oh, you must care about health. Oh, you must be a good person. Maybe sometimes too much how that happened and yet how we don't actually have equal access to fitness, which is this thing that I do think is a society we think is, is really important. And see, I want to go into what I realized when I was writing my book this past year, because that is one thing that, that I was able to, to get knocked out um, during the pandemic is, and the funny thing is, I, I don't remember if I emailed this to you, but I can travel, I can speak to a group of 200 people in China through an interpreter. I can teach a workshop, but trying to navigate Zoom school with a first and third grader has really kicked, kicked my behind. So I have a ton of, you know, and I have no patience for conspiracy theories. And I've said this before on the podcast, I have zero, zero tolerance for the conspiracy theories. But if you told me the teachers union was behind, the teachers unions were behind the virus, so we all could experience 
um, being a teacher, I believe it. But one thing, Natalia, that I, that I want to start off with is one of the things I realized when I was putting putting my book together is that this is the first time in history when we have a population of people over the age of 50 who've been exercising throughout their lifespan. Wow. Because when you look at that prior to, because what I, what I love about your work is you do a great job of pointing out that the modern fitness industry is only from 1970, about the late 60s, to early 1970s and beyond. So it's only been about the last 50 years. You made the reference that we've had access to exercise as a recreational activity. Is that really, is that kind of what your work focuses on is kind of how that's impacted our culture? Yeah, that's certainly part of it. I mean, if you think that one of the reasons that like old people today don't look like old people when we were kids, and I think you and I are around the same age, you know, early 40s, is because exercise has been something that folks have been doing for a long period of their life. And I think importantly, what they think, um, it's been also something that they see as appropriate to continue when they're older. I mean, you know, a couple of years ago, I remember reading a statistic I found really surprising, which is that one of the biggest demographics in gym membership sales growth were people over 55. And if you have a kind of vision in your mind of who goes to the gym, I think there's one version of that vision, which is like, oh, the young, hot people who are already fit. But actually, no, now the notion is that being fit is, you know, something that you can do and you should do. And sometimes the should can be a little too much and it can be a pressure, but your whole life. And I think that that on the balance, I think that is probably a really good thing. Um, I will say there, you know, I always love to give reading recommendations. And I will say that a more depressing read on this topic is Barbara Ehrenreich's book, Natural Causes. And she talks about how like when she retired, that like her friends were like, well, now your full-time job is to go to the gym. Like that's what you do basically to like stave off death. And I'm like, okay, so that's like a less optimistic way of looking at that trend. But yeah, I think it's a really meaningful trend for sure. Well, and that's the thing that in the research that that I've done. Okay, let me let me clarify that. I haven't done the research personally. I'm not wearing a lab coat. But in the, in reading through the research, what and this is one of the reasons why I left the American Council on Exercise a number of years ago, because if I had started going down this route and as a full time employee of the organization, they would have owned the IP on that. You know, because mm-hmm. when you work for an organization, you do that type of stuff. They tend to own the they they own the intellectual property. But what I started realizing a number of years, Natalia, a number of years ago, was that the higher intensity exercise can elevate the hormones like growth hormone and testosterone, which help us stay young. And, and just so you know, for women, growth hormone plays a much bigger role than, than testosterone because women don't produce as much. But that's what I started writing about is that for people, and first of all, thank you, I'm 48. I'm not in my early 40s, but I'm 48. But, <laughs> but the, when you start getting over the age of 40, the reason for exercise becomes much less about appearance and appearance is always important, but it becomes much less about appearance, but it's much more about managing the managing the aging process or managing health. Do you think we have that mindset in, in greater society or do you think um, do you think that, that we are still focused on exercise and fitness more as an image as a very image con- conscious issue? It's such a good question. And I think our media landscape today is so segmented segmented that it's hard to say like what the dominant imagery or messaging is around exercise. I mean, in part, probably because of the ads I'm served, you know, I get exercise, I get exercise ads that use words like empowerment and being your best self and self-care. And I'm like, oh, this is so positive and not only about body image. But then I go seeking out, you know, other parts of Instagram, for example, and like accounts with 800,000 people are really about like, get your most shredded abs, tiniest waist ever, fat burning. And I'm like, oh, this is like exactly like 1990 when I was like buying diet fuel at GNC, you know, and like trying to just really be as thin and ripped as possible. And so I really think um, it kind of depends who you're listening to. I do think when we think about dominant like media messaging around advertising, we probably have moved away from the overt like don't get fat, you know, get thin. I think we have moved away from that. And, you know, I look at a lot of historical ads in my um, work and even from 10, like 15 years ago, there's been a real shift in the messaging and kind of like mainstream media outlets. So, and, and you didn't ask if that's good or bad, but I think it probably is good. 
Now, what looking at that, it just what occurred to me is what's been your favorite era? As you look back at, at American history, like maybe the last 50 or 60 years, do you have like a favorite era that that you have focused on? And maybe it goes back further than that. And I'll tell you why I'm asking that in a second. But is there like one area that you really kind of like, whether it's the 60s or the 80s or the 20s, that you kind of roll up your sleeves and you start going, yeah, I want to get more into that? Yeah, that's such a great question. So yeah, with, it's funny with this book, you know, I'm a historian and like my, my really hardcore scholarly work I did getting my PhD was not really about scene setting, but with this book, which is supposed to be for a more popular audience, I really tried to like have my readers like picture the worlds that they're entering in the history of fitness culture. And that's gotten me excited. Like if I could time travel and go back, I will say from an exercise science perspective, I would want to be alive today. Like, I don't want to go back in time. But in terms of experiencing what things were like, I mean, I would have loved to be alive at the 1893 World's Fair and seeing the strong men flexing on stage. And like, apparently, literally women would line up and say like, can I touch your muscles? Like, because they've never seen that before. And meanwhile, when you look at like those strong men like Sandow today, I mean, they're muscular, but they don't look like the guys that compete in bodybuilding contests, contests contests or even like the guys I see lifting heavy at the gym. And so there's a real shift in like what those fit bodies look like. I will say the other moment I would love to be able to like dive into was kind of like those early um, chain health clubs, like Vic mm-hmm. Tanny and like some of those guys who came out of Muscle Beach. Cause it was so interesting in the, in the late fifties and early sixties, like they had to sell the idea that exercise and paying for membership could be luxurious. And so they'd all advertise like fully carpeted weight, weight rooms and stuff. And I'm thinking like, gross, like who would want a carpeted weight room? But they really sold it as part of like this luxurious experience. One of those gyms, I don't think it was Tanny, but maybe Lucille Roberts, they talked about the, um, the uh, crocheted shower curtains in the bathrooms. And they were trying to like show this isn't some nasty basement full of sweaty dudes. Like this is a luxurious (laughs) place. And I would have, and some of them had sculptures and statuary in them. I would have loved to just check out what it would be like to, to be a member there to walk in and see that. You can, that'd be interesting to shop that, but I love the fact you referenced the 1890s because for, for listeners and viewers, the 1890s is known as the first era of physical culture. And I think it was, you know, it was Eugenie Eugenie Sandow. Um, For people that don't know, the Sandow Trophy is the trophy for Mr. Olympia. And I don't know if you heard the interview, but I interviewed Dorian Yates earlier this year. And Dorian had, yeah, he he had won uh, Mr. Olympia six times. And that was a fun interview to talk about his evolution of fitness from bodybuilding. And now he does more yoga and meditation. And actually a little sidebar, he does, he does uh, ayahuasca journeys a couple of times a year. So he's, he's gone really, which is fascinating, right? Because has a whole thing of mind body. But one of the things that, that I'm reading right now, I'm a fan of Teddy Roosevelt. And because Teddy Roosevelt was one of the first, like kind of big proponents of physical culture of this era of being active and and it's the doors and i get it wrong kearns goodwin or goodwin kearns but what's that doris kearns goodwin you're right doris kearns goodwin and it's but it's her book on on taft and and roosevelt and i wrote uh read edmund morris's um series on roosevelt but roosevelt teddy roosevelt used to box he actually had his eye damaged by boxing a secret service agent and he used to go on these power hikes through um through rock creek park and i don't know if you've been in rock creek park in dc but it can be pretty vigorous. What role, I mean, what role do you think that leaders like that play in kind of shaping the natural zeitgeist? Because over the last number of years, we've had, we we had a, we recorded a podcast on this a couple of years ago, but I always like revisiting this because I do think whether we like it or not, I do think that our political leaders kind of help set the example for how we should, should kind of live towards. What role do you think they play? Do you think people pay attention to that? Um, Yeah, it's such a great question. I love Roosevelt in that era. I think it's so interesting to think about from not just the formal political lens, but as you're saying, the physical culture lens. Well, I think, you know, you're right. And we talked, we've talked about on here that really until Trump, who was pretty unique, um, there were a lot of presidents, and particularly in the modern era, like since JFK, who have made like their own personal fit, physical fitness, like a positive part of their persona. And it's usually pretty uncontroversial. Like, 
okay, Jimmy Carter's jogging, George Bush is a runner. Like when there's been, it's like a positive thing. These guys take care of their body and we like them for it. Now, the, the way that their exercise habits are depicted is of course, always connected to the larger culture. And I think with Roosevelt, you really see that really strongly. First of all, there's the fact that you probably know this from the biography. He was teased mercilessly as a kid for being a sissy, you know, and being called like a wimp. And, you know, and so for him, there was this like personal um, sort of self on the shoulder, chest puffed out. Yeah. Totally. Like he had to like step into that kind of like masculine, like rigorous, um, vigorous life ideal. Um, And he called it the strenuous life. But he's also president at a time, right, when America is becoming more urban. So you have like all these people moving away from doing manual labor on farms and a lot of people not being so sure what that means for the health of the nation. Now people are in these like, you know, unhealthy cities. The more affluent ones are sitting at desks all day. So they're getting physically unfit. And, you know, um, without like giving a whole lecture on it, because I'm like so interested in it, you know, Roosevelt and Sandow and Bernard McFadden, who you know of, who was another one of these guys, they were all these really important figures in physical culture in that era. But one of the things that's forgotten when we just grab quotes from them and put them on Instagram, we're like, oh, it's like, they were really about like strengthening white people. Like that was explicitly part of their project because a lot of what they were worried about as there was all this immigration coming from Southern and Eastern Europe, as there were all these African-Americans, not that long since slavery, now emancipated, they were really worried that white bodies were becoming weak and that they had to be deliberately strengthened to perpetuate the race. And so, you know, I say that without trying to be too like, you know, um, sort of like trying to put an analysis where it doesn't exist, but I'm telling you, having read those sources, it is explicit in there. One of the things I I just want to mention, because, you know, we're talking about men, And this was totally part of like strengthening, um, you know, a kind of masculine strong ideal during this period. But like a guy like McFadden, you read some of his publications and you're like, oh my God, like he was supporting women exercising and they have like women doing strength exercises in a way that you did not see in in that time. At the same, and he hated corsets, okay? Like he had like pages and pages. Corsets are terrible. So I'm reading and I'm like, yeah, corsets are terrible. Like he's so progressive and all this. And then he talks about the reason that corsets, which were popular with white middle-class women were so terrible is because they crushed their organs and they couldn't have more white babies. And so it was very, very, very explicitly tied to strengthening the white race. Sandow, Sandow's writings are full of that kind of thing. My Russian stock, my like white body. I mean, it really is remarkable. And I think we conveniently forget that when we just want to be like, oh, the fathers of like modern strength training. They are, but let's have the full picture of who they are. It doesn't mean we can't talk about them or even celebrate parts of their legacy, but that's really important and and often not like brought up. Well, and I think, but as you're saying that, Natalia, you, you you kind of bring that forward to where we are now, where you have this whole underlying, I mean, in the, in the last cycle, you have this whole underlying kind of nationalism. And that is one thing I don't think, and, and we're not a history podcast, we're a fitness podcast, but this is contextualizing. I like to, but I like talking about this topic. When we look at it, you know, when you look at the history of our country, there's always been that undercurrent of white nationalism. Always, ever since, I mean, since the founding, three-fifths of, of personages, you know, was written into the Constitution to accommodate the southern the southern states for the slaveholding states so they didn't outvote the northern states, so they didn't outrepresent the northern states. So we've had this undercurrent of white nationalism, but I personally, I did not know that about the fitness movement of, of the era of physical culture of having to be strong because it wasn't until, in my understanding, and you mentioned JFK, it wasn't until the 1960s, the 1970s, when we were in the midst of the Cold War, when we realized, hey, we better do something about our fitness. We better do something about our health. Now, the question that you're that, that kind of came to mind as you're talking is at what era, when, when did fitness start becoming more promoted for women? Because I know because you can go back to that era too, the 1890s and 1920s, you had the suffrage movement. You had so not only you have so many things going on, but at what point did did fitness start becoming a little bit more mainstream for for women? Yeah, well, this is like 
the perfect mix of fitness content and history, because sometimes when I talk to historians and they say like, you know, something like what you said, when is fitness, did fitness become popular for women? And I'm like, we need to discuss exactly what kind of exercise modalities you're talking about. Cause like women powerlifting is not women group dancing. Right. And all of that falls under fitness, but they become really popular at different times. So, you know, in that same period, when you're talking about physical culture, like, yes, some of these guys like Sandow, like McFadden, are saying women should lift weights as well. It helps them like realize their full femininity. Even before that, and kind of at the same time, there are all these physical educators who are arguing that women should be allowed to be physically active, but they're very specific that the, that the exercises that they are promoting are not ones that will one, make women look masculine, so they will not build muscle, and two, they will not cultivate unfeminine um, characteristics. And that unfeminine characteristic was those unfeminine characteristics were seen to be competitiveness and individualism and violence. And so when you read these um, articles or these books talk like promoting exercise for women in the late 19th century, it's new to say women, are, their uterus isn't going to fall out if they like pick up the pace a little bit, because that really was a belief. But they're very clear that, you know, modified forms of different field games, group dancing, things without a clear winner, definitely not things that are too rough. And there, there are exceptions. Like I have this one example in the chapter I'm writing of like this debutante who is a boxing champ. And she's trying to convince that there's like, it's about grace. Like this is about dancing. So it's okay okay for a girl to do this, but those are exceptions. Then to answer your question of like how we got to today though, with women, with this being these huge consumers of fitness and such a big presence in the industry, I think you really see the power of that movement happening first in the kind of like 1930s to 1950s, not out of athletic culture, but out of the beauty industry. And all of the stuff that from today's viewpoint looks like kind of almost like early group fitness, early boutique fitness, it's coming out of um, beauty technology or beauty salons. And so you would have, you know, sometimes a beauty salon where you get your hair done and your nails done and like attached to it, or even inside some sort of like body work machine, often those belts, slenderizing belts, they were called <laughs> them that shake you, you yeah. know, but it really, it was, it was like, you know, only sort of loosely understood as what we consider today to be exercise, but some ballet based movements. And that kind of paves the way the idea that women can exert their bodies and spend money doing it to be pretty rather than to be athletic, that makes a lot of people a lot more comfortable with it. So that happens. Then up to the next big chapter and then we can like go on to something else. The next big boom would be like the 60s and 70s and feminism and Title IX. Some real changes both in the science around women's bodies and what they're capable of. I mean, you still have people in the 70s talking about like a woman who runs too far will not be able to have babies. She'll look like a man. She'll like grow mustache, et cetera. You really have that. Um, but also I think what's important there from the science perspective is less about gender and more about our understanding of exercise. And when you have in the 60s, what we would call today cardio, be seen as like a healthy thing for everyone to do, that goes a long way for including women in who should exercise because it's not just weightlifting anymore, which always seemed like sort of ill-suited to many women. And it's not just like military style calisthenics. And so once cardio is in the mix, a brisk jog, you know, a walk, a cycle or swim, that's something that um, is not as like hostile to dominant ideas about femininity as some of these other things. And so I think that's a really important moment. I'm going to break in for one moment and tell you about some exciting news. At the All About Fitness podcast, I am never going to put content behind a paywall. However, if you become a supporter of the podcast, you will get access to exclusive content that I am not going to make available anywhere else. So here's the deal. You can become a fan of the All About Fitness podcast by purchasing one of my eBooks, Dynamic Anatomy, Exercise for the Fountain of Youth, or Functional Core Training. Each eBook is $7. And if you purchase an eBook, you become a fan of the All About Fitness podcast. If you purchase a workout, I have a dumbbell strength training workout, a kettlebell training workout, and I have a functional core training workout. Each program is eight weeks long. It includes the workouts, includes metabolic conditioning, 
and they include active recovery workouts. It's a great deal. Each workout is $12. By purchasing a workout for $12, you become a supporter of the All About Fitness podcast. To become a super fan of All About Fitness, you purchase a bundle. I have different bundles available. I have bundles of ebooks. I have the Dynamic Anatomy ebook and webinar bundle. I have the Functional Core Training and Dynamic Anatomy ebook bundle. Bundles are $19. So those are the three price levels. You become a fan by purchasing the ebook for $7. You become a supporter by purchasing a workout for $12. Or you become a super fan by purchasing a bundle for $19. I don't want to take advertising dollars. I want this to be a listener-supported podcast. By supporting the All About Fitness podcast, not only do you get great episodes, I try to put out four to five full-length interviews each month, but by supporting the podcast, you'll get access to exclusive content that'll help you learn how to use exercise to enhance your quality of life. Thanks for your time. Now let's get back to the interview. But then you look at, like I interviewed uh, Judy Mset earlier this year, the founder of Jazzercise, and she started that because she was a dance instructor in Chicago, and she realized that people were coming to her dance class who, who had no intention of being professional dancers, but wanted to dance, you know, they, they, or to exercise. They wanted to dance for exercise because they liked the way it made them feel. They liked the movement of it. And, and what's funny is you're saying this, Natalia, I'm thinking about, you know, when I first started personal training years ago in, in the late nineties, we were told that women who are pregnant, you know, I'm kind of thinking about what you're saying about the, the women's physiology from years ago, but now like 25 years ago, we we're women that were pregnant. Oh no, don't get your heart rate above 130. Don't, you know, there are so many unknowns when in reality, my experience between, you know, my ex-wife and, and our two kids and, and having worked with women who are incredibly fit, it's like, if you were fit going into your pregnancy, you could maintain that fitness throughout the pregnancy, you know, and, and you're, and you're right because the title nine thing, and I'll share this story with you yeah. is as an instructor, especially 20 years ago, it was clearly evident. And the reason why I say 20 years ago is people my age, 20 years ago, I was in my mid to late twenties. And so women my age and younger, like around 30, 30, early 30s and younger, I saw in the group fitness classes were very athletic. Meanwhile, women like 35, 40 and over, and I'm talking about early 2000s, women 35, 40 and over didn't have that same level of athleticism. And it dawned on me that if they're over the age of 40, and I'm talking about the early 2000s, like, you know, if they're over the age of 40, 20 years ago, they did not grow up in Title IX, where mm-hmm. women my age, your age and younger that were in, in, at the time, my late 20s, had grown up playing sports, had grown up on the, the sports teams, whereas the, the women that were a few years older than me hadn't, you know, is that, is that been a big, do you, is that schism still exist in, you know, in, in our, in our society? Do you think there is that kind of that, that fear that women stay away from some of these things because it might make them too masculine as oh, opposed sure. to helping them share better health, achieve I better mean, health. How many times have you been in a fitness environment? I'm looking at your step and repeat there with like the barbell above the head. And like some woman like often says sort of quietly, like it won't make me bulk up, will it? You know what I mean? And this fear of becoming bulky. Um, I've interviewed quite a few women who work in the CrossFit world, which I think is like really interesting gender dynamics too. And like some of these women I've interviewed are like professional, they're or not professional, but CrossFit athletes. They're competitive. They train many, many hours a week. They look like that, right? They're like built like a brick house. And like, they say, they're like, when I teach like a 45 minute class at our box and these like women who weigh 120 pounds are like scared they're going to look like me. Like that's still something that I contend with. And it's a little crazy. I, I mean, I don't want to say it's a little crazy. That is still very much, I think, a kind of dominant fear because our dominant female body type or the one that's seen as aspirational, yes, it's way more muscular than it was 20 years ago, I agree, or 30 years ago, but it's still thin, you know? And I think we often see even the more muscular women who are celebrated tend to be on the more thin and conventionally attractive side and tend to build muscle in a particular way. I do think that's changing with a lot of like the Instagram accounts particular that are focused on, you know, people who are, forget even muscular, like, you know, women who call themselves fat, but are like tremendously physically active. I love this one runner, Mirna Vader is her tag, Mirna Valerio. And she calls herself like she's, she's fat. She's black. She says, I don't look like what a conventional marathoner looks like. People treat me like I've like never run a race in my life. She's out there putting on a million more miles on the road than I am, you know? So I think people like her are really changing our ideas, but you're not seeing that in magazines as much yet, or like- 
gem. You know, you're right. It hasn't caught up. And I, and I do think there's just been a shift. I will acknowledge there's been a major shift and it's been the last 10 or 12 years going back to the, to the kind of the popularization of CrossFit and bodybuilding. What's funny is, and again, I, this occurred to me when, when I was, was put working on my book is Natalia before the early two thousands, 90% of the research, majority of the research done on high intensity training was done specifically in the context of athletes. You know, when you look at, when you look at the research studies, that's where Tabata, Tabata came from studies on speed skaters about, can we use high intensity interval training to improve aerobic capacities for speed skaters? It wasn't about developing a group fitness format that you can do in four minutes. You know, it was, so, but it was then the early 2000s, what happened is you had this shift. You had Marty Gabala and a few other people that said, hey, why don't we look at HIT high intensity interval training? And does it apply to a, to a healthy pot? Can, can we use it for obesity? Can we use it for health issues? And right about the same time, it's funny how these synergies exist. Right at about the same time, they started shifting the focus in the labs. That's when po- CrossFit all of a sudden became popular. You know, and it's, it's so funny. Have there been things like that? The reason why I mention that is because you never know for sure whether a research drives a trend or a trend becomes popular. And then you have the research guys, the guys in the lab coats going, well, hmm, why is, how does this work? Why is it working? What's it doing to our body? How do you, do you look at that in your work? Do you look at the kind of like that juxtaposition of the chicken and the egg? Totally. And it's not sometimes the sexiest part of doing fitness history um, research. Like some people would much rather look at like pretty pictures of Muscle Beach, but I am really fascinated with the changing role of expertise vis-a-vis fitness. And one of the things I think is really troubling is like, okay, so the fitness industry is huge. More people than ever are spending money and at least saying they want to work out more, whether they do it or not. And with that, we have had this boom in knowledge and exercise science and kinesiology since the 70s or so, but the industry and the kind of academic research and expertise don't really go together a lot of the time. Sometimes they do. But if you think about, I mean, you and I have talked about credentialing, for example, and like, I actually think we're kind of in a crisis around credentialing and expertise in the fitness industry, where you can have a bajillion followers on Instagram based on your journey and good lighting. And like, maybe this thing worked for you, this program you put together, but how the hell do you know it works for anyone else? I'm going to cut it. I'm going to cut in here one second because I just wrote this piece for the American Council on Exercise going into this thing because, and and now we can transition to talking a little bit about COVID and the future of the industry. Because Natalia, if you have, if you have a good Instagram account and you know how to just what you said, lighting and how to film yourself, you, and you know how to reach out to people, gyms are going to become irrelevant for personal trainers. As a personal trainer, I don't, you know, up until three or four years ago, personal trainers needed to be in a facility to work with people. But now via, via um, the t- technology we're using, video conferencing and social media, as far as personal training and, and group fitness is involved, the, the actual facility is becoming irrelevant. And I think, I think facility operators, as they start ramping back up from post-COVID, I think facility operators are going to be in a world of hurt looking for talent to be able to staff their facilities. Is that something that you've, you've noticed or observed? Yeah, I think I have noticed, or at least I'm thinking, I mean, it's still a little early to think about what the shakeout is going to be, but I do think um, in some ways to be a successful fitness professional in this like accelerated digital environment post-COVID, when like, if you think about the sensibility shift happening from consumers, going to the gym used to be something that you felt unequivocally good about. Like I'm spending money on my health. I'm going to do something good for me. Now going to the gym feels like, maybe I'm being reckless and selfish because like I should be at home working out. Like maybe I'm like contributing to a pandemic by going to the gym. Like, you know, there's a a very more, a more complicated emotional um, calculus that goes into spending money. So what does that mean? It means exactly what you're saying for trainers and for getting people in the door. And yet, as you mentioned, the skill set for being successful as a trainer in this regard is much more about like marketing and video production and self-presentation. Now, what I wonder might is possible that could happen and might be like a blueprint for some of these facilities that have that hire credentialed people that have training programs of their own um, in place would be like if they can create like if they can create really high production values in what they're putting out there and guarantee 
that you have really high quality trainers. Well, and they can make it worth the while of like the people producing the content. That's something exciting. I mean, that's a little bit what we've seen, you know, with some of the digital platforms that are doing so well. I mean, I, I see Obey Fitness a little bit like that. Um, Mirror is a little bit like that. Like you have confidence that those people on there are not just like YouTube trainers, right? We'd like to think that they have a series of credentials. I will make a caveat there with saying that you can't, though, rely on the fact that just because someone's associated with a brand that they, especially a digital one, that they have like a whole host of fitness credentials, because as we know, that's not really the case. I mean, you know, SoulCycle is a really famous example and so often the kind of whipping girl for this. But, you know, they would say we don't want to hire cyclists. We don't want triathletes. We want someone who we can train ourselves. And a lot of their training was like entertainment and performance more so than physical um, fitness or health. And I think that's some as consumers because we really, really wary of. And, and you're 100% right. And I just recently, a couple months ago, interviewed somebody from Barry's Boot Camp, sweetheart of a guy. I mean, really nice guy, very popular instructor. And you might have taken Josie. I don't know if you took Josie Greenwell's Yeah, I used to go 6.30 Friday mornings. But, but he, and he's a, he's a very nice guy, very sincere. And But he, he was a performer. He's a, he's a musician. He actually had, he had an album come out, which is why I was interviewing him. And, and you're absolutely right, Natalia, on the equipment side, when I've been doing work with like Nautilus and Stairmaster, I've had operators tell me like health club operators and studio operators saying, well, no, I don't want to hire certified trainers. I want to hire people who can entertain. They want to hire talent who is good in front of an audience, who knows how to engage an audience. And you have this schism and because somebody might, they might look phenomenal. They might be engaging, but you know what? They're just, they don't know what they don't know about the exercise physiology. And that's really where, that's one of the reasons why I started this podcast in all, in all seriousness was try to bring some of the egg, I don't want to call them eggheads, but, but literally try to bring that education out there and saying, okay, they might look good on camera. They might have a body that, yes, you want to aspire to that, but what do they really know about how exercise affects the physiology? Because here's what we know. We need to exercise. A lack of exercise will kill us. That definitive, right? That's definitive. Here's the other thing is that exercise done wrong will either hurt you or it could kill you. I mean, exercise done wrong. Every health club I've worked for from commercial health clubs to the YMCA has had people pass due to cardiac arrest on the fitness floor. And it just is, is, that's where people don't realize that. So when you look back in, in your work, how, how much of an emphasis do you place? I know you do personally, but how much of an emphasis do you think we place as a society on that educated professional, or is it merely just about appearance? Such a good question. So, you know, the early kind of um, fitness exercise science research all really came out of the military, or as you mentioned, athletic uh, context too, right? And like a lot of that is kind of happening in the mid 20th century with the Cold War. Kenneth Cooper, who's like the father of cardio, um, his book was called Aerobics. It came out in 1968. That really is one of those early kind of crossover figures that where he wrote a book that really like popularized what he had discovered in a lab for common consumption. But then, you know, I would say like the big picture way way to think about this is like when you think about those early exercise professionals who are opening gyms and studios, and I would say from like the 1960s through even like I hear this like through 1980 or so, they don't really have a lot of formal educational training in part because there's certainly, there were like physical education programs for sure. And some of those people absolutely came out of PE um, college programs. Like you, I heard a lot of that in my research. Um, but then like you don't have as the commercial fitness industry is growing in those era, in that era, you really until the early 80s, you do not have professional certification or professional development. So some of the folks that I've interviewed who are like titans of that era, like Molly Fox, who's just like an amazing figure. You probably know her um, personally. You know, she's like I one of the most like popular studios in New York City. And we're like going to the Strand bookstore and like looking through books for exercises as, as, you know, to see what to do. And because there wasn't that kind of professional development, particularly when folks are coming not just out of PE, but out of dance, out of, you know, sports to some extent as well. Then, as you well know, you have what I call the kind of alphabet soup era of like some of these agencies that come up in the 80s, 
ACE, IDEA, AFA, right, which are all trying to formalize and professionalize this industry. And they, um, it's been really interesting. I mean, I'm preaching to the choir here because you, you know so much more about these particular spaces than I do, but maybe your listeners don't. And like, you know, from a historical perspective and someone who spent all of her life in universities too, it is really interesting to me that while those organizations are certainly drawing from the research coming out of universities, they're deliberately not really convergent with them, right? Like they're, 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 you've, we've never had a moment in the history of fitness where you need a bachelor's degree in exercise science in order to get a job at a gym. Like never. Well, real quick, do you realize that in Brazil, Brazil requires, in, in order for you to work in a health club in Brazil, you have to have a four-year degree. And in Brazil, all the health clubs, and I'm 100, yeah, I've, I've worked with enough <laughs> people that have emigrated from Brazil to US and having been, I was in Sao Paulo two years ago for a conference and in Brazil, you have to have a four-year degree, and every health club has an EMT on staff the hours that the health club is open in case somebody yeah. does. I mean, that's how – but you, you, I, you didn't, I didn't realize you didn't know that. I, you know, that, that, that is – but we're, that is so far ahead. Normally, we look at a country like Brazil and think, oh, they don't, you know, they don't know what they're doing. But in reality, they were – you know, and I, I learned about that 10 or 12 years ago when I was working with uh, the clubs in New York, and we had a number of Brazilians, that, and they were surprised. The Brazilians would tell me – you guys don't require a four-year degree in order to be a trainer. And, and it's so fascinating. It's so American though, in some ways where like, there's this antipathy to like book learning and more about like, it's <laughs> your like bootstrapping to do things yeah. like that total that. I mean, that is, I did not know that fact. And I do think that's also interesting because the version of Brazilian fitness that gets marketed in the U S is like so superficial, right? Brazilian booty lift. Like it's very much about like appearance, but clearly there's this much more substantive expertise in what they're actually doing in clubs. And yeah, I mean, another kind of wrinkle in that story, which I find really interesting is, so as I mentioned, I interviewed like all these like big names that you would have heard of um, in the fitness industry from that, those early years, like the eighties, early nineties. And a lot of them did come up through PE programs and they had this um, like, you know, tone about their comments, which I totally understand, which is like, can you imagine if like, I hadn't been born at the moment I'd been born in, I would have ended up a PE teacher. And there was this sense, and I love PE teachers, but that's a pretty degraded part of our economy and in terms of job prospects and even within the education hierarchy of things, PE teachers, unfortunately, don't get a lot of respect. And so you had like some of these folks who were like always the jock or like, like to be hanging around at the playground who were going to be PE teachers and then like the 80s and the 70s and this fitness boom happens and all of a sudden there are all these private industry opportunities for them. But it's not, um, it's not something that's really matched up with higher ed, even as exercise physiology and kinesiology have become really vibrant like uh, academic fields. So that's kind of an interesting dimension too. And then I want to finish up with a chat about COVID, but real quick, I mean, that's why my, my undergrad degree is in government and economics. Because, you know, I graduated high school in 1990 and college in 1994. And when I looked at it, I'm like, well, you know, I'm like, yeah, I like exercise. And I had worked at a, at a health club my senior year in high school. So I was into it. But there was no absolutely in the, in the early 90s. You had the first personal trainers like Kelly Roberts, who's working with Cher. And I think, you know, Kelly, who's a friend of mine. And you had a couple of personal trainers kind of starting to percolate into the zeitgeist uh, of what we do. But there was no viable career path. So that's why, you know, and, and I floundered on Capitol Hill for a couple of years. Before, and I was working part time at a gym in 1998 when I started getting into this full time. So that was, that was kind of how I, you know, did, did that. Now, real quick, what I want to ask you, uh, Natalia, and, and in history, having been a student in history, and I love history, history can't tell us, we can't predict the future from history, from understanding history, but it does give us an idea into trends. So what do you think is going to happen over the next year, two years of how the industry is going to adapt to COVID? I mean, what do you think with all the closures and everything, how do you think that that the industry is going to evolve out of this, the current, the current situation we're in? Yeah, I mean, great question. I'm, yeah, I was with already giving me my caveat of like, as a historian, I can't tell you the future. 
But, you know, I think as with most industries, we're seeing COVID kind of accelerate trends that were already underway. And so one of the things, you know, I wrote this piece on the future of gyms for, for uh, Medium under their business vertical called Marker. And, you know, I was kind of astonished that the fact that IRSA um, says that by the end of 2020, 25% of brick and mortar gyms are going to shut their doors. And I mean, that is a really alarming statistic, but I think one that kind of emphasizes how fragmented the fitness industry is, how razor thin so many of the margins are in terms of operating, how much so many of them were like hanging on by a thread anyway to just have feet through the door. So I think that we're going to see a consolidation for sure, where some of the more vibrant brands will probably be bought up by more capitalized um, entities. I think I mentioned before, I do think going to a brick and mortar uh, fitness space right now is a more complex emotional like decision than it was in the past. And for the most part, I think that's bad for brick and mortar fitness. There are, we didn't even talk about like, you know, there's that video circulating right now on social media of that gym owner in uh, New Jersey, who's like defiantly open and he's racked up all these fines and no masks. And I'm showing up to the gym to show, you know, that I am more let the government tell me what to do. And that is a powerful impulse. I don't think it's as powerful as people kind of just being like, am I going to get sick if I go to the gym? I think that'll be hard. We'll see a lot of shuttering of those brick and mortar spaces. I think we'll see the continued growth of digital. I mean, I bought a Peloton during the pandemic. Um, I'm so basic, sorry. But, you know, and I'm, I'm really, really happy that I did. Um, and then uh, oh, there was another thing that I was going to say. Oh, yeah. And then you know, I interviewed recently the founder of Mind Body Online, the booking platform, okay. yeah. and he just had such an interesting perspective on things. And this is someone whose business like really suffered early on. Like he's mentioned everything drying up overnight in March, like with, with bookings. But he said something which I do think is true. I don't think that the enthusiasm for fitness is going anywhere. And I think actually it's going to be even more pronounced due to COVID because we know that all of like many of the comorbidities for COVID are things that can be alleviated through exercise, not fixed, right? And like there's a lot of socioeconomic and structural issues that exercise is not going to fix for you. But I do think that the emphasis on um I do think the emphasis on kind of preventative health will probably motivate more people to um, want to pursue being physically active, particularly when things stabilize a little bit. Because I think, you know, I've always said when there, when sometimes there's some like shaming that goes on about like, why don't people just go work out? Why don't they just go running? I'm like, you know, if you have a really unpredictable life, whether you work shift labor or you have to travel a long way or you have someone sick or you're a caregiver, it's hard to make that time. And I think more of us are experiencing that kind of unpredictability in our life right now. And so I think once that stabilizes a little bit and people maybe have new norms, then hopefully exercise in a regular way, even if it's at home, is going to make its way back into people's lives, um, I think, probably stronger than ever. Well, and I, I agree 100%, Natalia. And we'll wrap up with this because I firmly believe that when the data come in, that yes, they're going to be the outliers of people who were fit and got really sick or passed from, you know, they had, they deceased from the virus. But I think the strong majority of people that are fit and didn't have existing chronic health conditions are going to have weathered this very well. And so I do think we're going to see a boom. And the, the thing is, the funny thing is this morning, I got my email for Apple Fitness Plus and I've had a, I've had a sneak preview and, and Molly Fox is one of the instructors on yeah. Fitness Plus. I don't know if you saw that in, in the- No, in the I, I do want that. I haven't gotten that. <laughs> but, but no, Molly Fox. So Molly Fox is good. And what, what Apple's done really well, like Apple does a lot of things really well, is they don't just have the young, fit, and the pretty. I mean, they have Jay Blonick and Jules Arney. People might not recognize those names, but they've been leaders in the fitness education industry for years. And so what, Jay's and Jewel, Jewel, what Jay and Jules did was they have, when you look at their, their, their um, imagery, they have old, they have young, they have thin, they have thick. They have white, brown, Asian. I mean, they have everybody in there. So they're going after, they have, you know, young, they have gray hair, they have everybody to, to meet that audience. So I think on one hand, health clubs are going to, and studios are going to survive, but they are already being bought by conglomerates. So the ones, like you said, that couldn't hold on, they're disappearing. And there've already been a couple of equity groups like NV, NVE is new, um, they're based, it's Mark Mastroff. Mark Mastroff, who sold 24 Hour Fitness a few years ago, started NEV, NEV, New Evolution Ventures. 
Um, they now own Crunch. They own Crunch franchises. They own UFC franchises. They own the, the, this big conglomerate. They have the, they have the capital to invest, and they're going to be opening up more facilities as some of these facilities go under. So you're going to yeah. see the strong get stronger. I think that's right. Um, and it's also just interesting to see how our use of these spaces is going to change. I mean, I have an Equinox a block away. I taught there many years, so I still go there as a member. And they have an interesting setup that I've been using almost every day, which is in the group fitness studio, which is not operating right now. They have distance stations with phone stands. And so I put my phone in there and I do a Peloton strength workout and they've laid out all the weights for you and you can get heavier weights. And like, that's a kind of weird thing to do, but it's certainly a lot nicer set up with more equipment than I have at home. And so they're using it in that way. And I will say, I, I I still sometimes go, but I used to go to a really sort of like local small strength gym here, which I love. And I know the owners, but I got to say in terms of like the safety piece of it, I have a little more confidence in a place with a lot of capital to invest in infrastructural improvements and probably maybe more fearful of like big lawsuits. They've done the vents, you know, they have a cleaning staff like all the time. And so that makes me sad because it makes one gravitate towards the more heavily capitalized places already. But like, it makes me nervous to be in a little basement gym with people who I know, like don't have a ton of capital to spend on, on, on improving that space. So we'll see how that plays out. But, but I do think, and to finish up with this, I really do think that in the long term, that yes, you're going to have the big players, but then another year, year to two years, Natalia, you are going to have the smaller people start the studios again. You know, it's just going to be, it's going to be a shakeout. There's going to be a period of discomfort and a period of adaptation. But I firmly believe, and I believe this with 100%, for people in our generation, for people in the quote fit generation, the gym is part of our life. It's not going to, you know, as we can work out at home, you can have your Peloton, you can do an Apple Apple Fitness Plus workout. Yeah, great. We're, we are adapting. I think the adaptation we're getting is that we're realizing we don't need to go to the gym. However, it becomes such a part of our social life. And I'll finish with this that the gym culture has become such a part of our social life that it really is. It's something that we do to be around other people, especially if we're going to be doing more work at home. If, if, if companies are going to adapt by having more work at home, then going to the gym is going to be my chance for personal interaction throughout the day. And for that, I think we'll get is where we we're, we're in good shape for the long run. Now, as we, to wrap up here, you do a fabulous podcast. I love your podcast. Talk about, I mean, do you have any idea when your book is going to drop? I mean, because give, oh give a little bit of promotion for what you do, because I think yeah. you're such a, such a cool yeah. personality in our business. Oh, thanks. So yeah, I have this really fun podcast. I've been doing it now for almost five years. It's called Past Present. You can get it anywhere you have podcasts. It's myself and two other historians. And we just like break down uh, one headline and then a couple other smaller stories through the lens of history. It's a pretty short one. Like the whole episode is probably about 30 minutes. And people say we give them something interesting to bring to dinner conversation and like an angle you don't get from CNN. We do have a new podcast that's going to be dropping in February on Spotify only. Oh, and wow. that is, there's a fitness culture aspect to it. I can't see too much about it, but it's great. I've seen you allude to it. I wonder, I wonder what that was. I've seen you allude to it. So you can go actually listen to the trailer. If you go to on Spotify, it's called um, Welcome to Your Fantasy. And you can go listen to the trailer now. But that's actually the story of Chippendales, the mega super fit guys as a lens on late 20th century America. It is a great story. Go listen to the trailer. That <clears throat> that full series is going to drop in February. So that'll be really exciting. And then the book, I am not teaching next semester. And next semester starts like tomorrow. Today's the last day of classes. So um, I am working only on that. Got three chapters left to go. They're all outlined. So I'm, I'm hoping by the end of the year, it'll be out. With next year, it'll be out. 20 I, I, and I'm looking, I am really looking forward to it. So, hey, Doc, I really appreciate your time. And I always, always, always cherish our conversation. So, and thank you. You are the first. So we're making history. You're a professor of history. And we're making history because this is the first, this is the first all about fitness that I'm doing. I'm doing, going to release the audio, but I'm doing it specifically the mindset of putting it on YouTube as well. So awesome. well, a, I'll share it too. As a professor of history, you just made history. So thanks a lot, Doc. I'll be in touch with you. Take care. Nice talking to you. Bye-bye. Yeah. Yeah. You can tell that, that I truly love geeking out with, with Natalia it, and I, I honestly, as somebody who worked in government, as a former policy wonk, as I mean, I like history. I love I I read more biographies and more historical fiction than I do fiction. And I, I'm currently reading my fourth or fifth book about Teddy Roosevelt because I'm fascinated. Teddy Roosevelt was one of the early fitness stars. 
He went from being a very sick, um, a sick, sickly young child with asthma and other issues to becoming one of the most vigorous and strenuous men of his era. And what I love about that, one of the reasons why I love reading about, about Teddy Roosevelt is when I lived in Washington, D.C., I lived on top of Rock Creek Park, and I would go through runs. I would go running the, their horse trails all the way through Rock Creek Park, right in downtown D.C., and I'd go running through Rock Creek Park once or twice a week during the summers. And to kind of to share that history, because Teddy Roosevelt would go on strenuous hikes throughout Rock Creek Park as part of his fitness regime when he was uh, president in the White House. And also, he lived in D.C., um, other parts of his career. But I, that's one of the reasons why I'm fascinated with, with Teddy Roosevelt, just so to have that connection with him. But this was a fun conversation. And again, reviewing history can't help you predict future events. It really can't. But it can help you put things in context and understand what might happen as a result of what's happening now. That's the reason for having Dr. Natalia on. Again, this was the first time I recorded this specifically for the YouTube platform. You can go to the All About Fitness podcast channel on YouTube. Check out, check out our conversation live and in person and subscribe to that podcast or subscribe to the All About Fitness podcast channel on YouTube because I will be putting a lot of content up there. You can see stuff I have up there. I have a couple of talks I've done. I have other stuff I've done. I have exercise how-tos. All that is trying, what I'm trying to do is to help you, my listener, understand how to use exercise to enhance your quality of life. That's my goal. We're all getting a little bit older. There's nothing we can do about that. But exercise can slow down the effects of the aging process. Exercise done well can help us enhance our quality of life no matter how old we become. So with that, if you want to connect with me, go to Pete at Pete McCall. Or sorry, if you want to connect with me, please go to PeteMcCallFitness.com. If you go to PeteMcCallFitness.com and sign up for my mailing list, you'll get two emails a month where you learn this information about how to use exercise to enhance your quality of life. You can email me, Pete at Pete McCall Fitness. That's Pete at PeteMcCallFitness.com. I'll get it right one of these days. You can email me, Pete at PeteMcCallFitness.com, or you can connect with me on the gram. That's Pete, under, uh, Pete McCall underscore fitness. Pete McCall underscore fitness on, e- on Instagram. All that stuff is down below in the show notes. And I want to say, as always, thank you for stopping by. And I do look forward to having you join me for future episodes of All About Fitness. <laughs>